All right, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Do you know those people, or maybe you are one of those people, that just want to do things? You want to get things done. You embody the Home Depot tagline, where doers get more done. Are you one of those people? Or you know one of those people and they really annoy you because they get more done in their life than you do? Those who are doers like to see a problem, and they want to work toward change. And those guys and ladies are going to love today's message because we've looked at three chapters in Ephesians that speak of doctrine, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, and it shifts in chapter 4 to talk about practice, from doctrine to practice. Chapters 1 through 3 are the why. Chapters 4 through 6 are the how. Chapters 1 through 3 are indicatives. Chapters 4 through 6 are imperatives. Chapters 1 through 3 are what to believe. Chapters 4 through 6 are how to live. So you doers out there, do not neglect chapters 1 through 3. Those are essential. Those are foundational. But enjoy basking in the the doing today, what God is calling us to do. So here's the big question. How shall we live? Let's consider that. How shall we live? How shall we live as a student or an employee or a mom or a dad? How shall we live as a neighbor or a cousin or a child? How shall we live as a husband, a wife, a roommate, an employer? How do we live as a follower of Jesus Christ? How do we live as a follower of Jesus Christ? Look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're just covering three verses today. Starting at verse 1. This is Paul speaking. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Point number one and what we're going to see today is practical Christianity. Practical Christianity. Just as Paul does at the beginning of chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 4, he tells us where he's writing from. He's writing from prison. He's in prison because he has faithfully preached the gospel. People have accused him of overturning society, speaking of a false kingdom and authority. So now he ends up in prison. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now, chapter before, he talks about being there on behalf of the Gentiles, that he's suffering for the Gentiles. But the main focus of his imprisonment is for the Lord. He is a prisoner for the Lord. Paul is willingly suffering, laying down his life because the Lord has modeled that for him and he's walking in that same path. And so now Paul's modeling that for the Ephesians and for us. Friends, we get really practical in Christianity right here. Living for the Lord is one of laying down your life. Living for the Lord is one of laying down your life. Matthew 16, our Savior says this, If anyone would come after me, or follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life or forfeits his soul? Following Jesus is laying down our lives daily. Following the king, saying, you have authority and I don't. You rule and I don't. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, his life, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life. And let's note, those men gave up their lives. It wasn't just speaking a, a, a nice little truth. It wasn't just a Hallmark card. No, they laid down their lives to follow their Savior. This week I was with my friend Craig Tuck. Some of you guys know him. Craig was talking about the Moravian leader in the 1700s named Count Ludwig von Zizendorf. Say that with me, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. I messed up, sorry. It's hard for you to repeat after me when I don't say it right. Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. So any pregnant ladies in here, you're looking for a name, Ludwig. There you go. We'll know where it came from. Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He helped start the Moravians. The Moravians were really good. Theologically, there's a few issues, but they were really good at missions, they wanted to get the gospel to other places. And there was something that Zinzendorf taught the missionaries. He said, when you're going, when you're going on the ship, you're heading out to speak the gospel in other nations, you take one piece of luggage on that ship. You'll put all your items for your mission and for your life in that luggage. You know what that luggage was? It was a coffin. Because they weren't coming back. They were going toward their death. They were laying down their lives for the sake of Christ. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, Ephesians, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. Now, part of the call is understanding the costliness of the call. We're bid to come and die. We honor the Lord. But it's not just death. It's also life. You see, for the Christian, death is always accompanied by resurrection, death and resurrection, death and resurrection. We are not just waiting around for death. Paul says we are also walking out the life that God has us walk. One author connects the walking here to Ephesians 2, 6 of the seated with Christ. We sit first, we've got to learn about our seatedness, and then we start walking. We walk out the seatedness. We walk out our position that we have in Christ Jesus. We walk in a manner worthy of the call, the gospel call on our lives that we, as we see in Ephesians chapter 1, have been chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and given the Holy Spirit. Paul summarizes it this way, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is for you who are in Christ Jesus. You have it all. You've been united to Christ, and you've been not united to one another. This is the call that we have upon our lives. And now, Paul is saying, let's walk this out. Let's walk this out. Your life should line up with the gospel call in your life. Your life should line up with the gospel. How many of you guys like the game Memory Match? 
you know, memory match, all the cards are laid out, and you flip a card here, and you flip a card over here, oh, they didn't match, you flip another card, and you're trying to remember where the cards are so you can get the most memory matches, right? Okay, so I used to be really good at this game as a kid. Now that I'm in my almost mid-40s, uh, not so good. So I'm playing other kids in my house, because we've got a bunch of them, and like they're just killing me now. It's just like this is no fun anymore. Memory match. I have Delon's sticker. Oh, it's okay. If someone has, if Delon's crying at all, please come get somebody else because my wife's not here right now. I can stop my sermon. I don't know what to do. All right, so memory match. Man, I'm distracted. Okay. What Paul is saying is that our life should be like the memory match. We have our life right, and our call, and they should line up. You, you flip the card, and you're looking for the same card. He's saying your call and your life should be the same. You're called by the gospel. You live out the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called. And this, Paul calls this the worthy life. That word worthy can be translated as weighty. It's a weighty thing to walk out the gospel call. It's a weighty thing to understand who you are in Christ and then live like it. So what does it look like? Verse 2 and 3. With humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is basic Christianity, practical Christianity, walking in the fullness of God's love from chapter 3 in community. Now, why do I add in community there? Well, gentleness and patience and love and unity, those all have to do with being around other people. Like, it's super easy to be patient with myself, you know? But it's other people that we have to be patient with. This is talking about practical Christianity is worth walking in biblical community, the church. So let's consider each of these important parts and consider it's, it's walking this Christianity out, but it's also laying down our lives as we walk out the five ways of the gospel. Five ways to walk out the gospel. John Stott calls, that's point number two, John Stott calls these the five foundational stones. The five foundational stones. The first one is humility. Humility. In the Greek mindset where Paul is writing, humility is not an admirable quality. It was lowly, it was subservient, it was just annoying to the Greeks. They didn't like this idea of being less than, something that's beneath them. But Paul comes in, this is what Jesus does all the time, he just flips the world upside down. What, what is seen as foolish is the grace and mercy and wisdom of God. Paul comes in and speaks of, of humility in the highest way. The first attribute of walking out the gospel, Paul says, is humility. That's worthy living. Humility should characterize the follower of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're people of the most humble man. Jesus who humbled himself and laid down his life. 
He took the lower spot. He washes the feet. So we don't think highly of ourselves. We think highly of the Lord. The humble person admits they are wrong, admits their sin, seeks forgiveness. Or as Tim Keller says, the humble person does not think less of themselves, but thinks of themselves less. Keller says there's a freedom of self-forgetfulness. The humble person so caring about others that they're not looking here. They're not curved in on themselves, continually looking at themselves. Scripture has tons to say about this. Here's just a few passages. Isaiah 66, 2, the second part of that verse. God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Get that, the the humble person is linked to the person that's in the Word, that knows the Word. God gazes at the humble person, and they love and tremble at God's Word. James 4, 6 through 9, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This tells us a lot about humility. The humble person submits to God. Understanding submission is not a bad thing. It is a godly thing. The humble person resists the devil. Understanding spiritual warfare is happening all the time around you. The humble person draws near to God. They take active steps of growth. The humble person is repentant, running to the cross where full forgiveness is extended. The humble person is not surprised by sin, but knows that God is going to expose sin and cut away the cancer of sin in our lives that continually lingers. Or as John Shea taught us last week from 1 Peter 1, God will refine us by the fire. For the testing genuineness of our faith. The humble person walks toward that saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7, Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And some of us, we just need to memorize and meditate on this verse. Here's what Paul says. Humble yourselves by casting your anxieties on him. Humble yourselves. Here's how we humble ourselves. We cast our anxieties, which there are some. Paul's saying don't just ignore the anxieties, but you cast them on the Lord because he cares for you. Some of us, we just define ourselves as anxious, but it's less of an anxiety problem and more of a humility problem. We cast our anxieties on him. That's how we humble ourselves. How do we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? The first thing that comes to Paul's mind by the Spirit working, humility. So friends, how are you doing in the category of humility? Are you growing in humility? If you look at the last five years or two years or six months, and I know that's an awkward question. If you're like, man, I killing it in humility. That means you're probably not. So it's an awkward question. I get it. But are you able to like laugh at yourself? Are you able to, do you take yourself super seriously? There's a key between pride and humility there. 
Are you quick to repent of your sin to your spouse, to your kids, to your roommates? There's a humility aspect there. Are you quick to receive input from others? Asking for their input because you know that they can see you and your heart and your actions in ways you can't see yourself. There's a humility link there. Friends, if you're not sure how you're doing in the category of humility, one of the great steps to take is ask. Ask someone. I was on a call just the other day with a guy who's probably 65, 66 years old, a guy I look up to. He's like author, like he's written a ton of books. He's like, uh, just I just look up to him. And so he, we had a meeting to talk about a few things with church planting and in the country. And so he's like, hey, I need to talk to you at first. And he was kind of like sobered. And I was like, oh man, he's about to bring me input, which is like, you know, you're just kind of bracing for it. You're like, okay, Lord, let me be humble as I receive this. And so he says, hey, uh, we were at a retreat a couple uh, weeks ago. And he's like, hey, I just was convicted that I was just kind of dominating some of the conversation. And did you notice that? I just wanted your input on that. So he's asking my input. And I was like, this is humility on display. Here's a guy of higher rank than me coming to a lower rank and saying, hey, I need your input. Did you notice this? I really want to grow in this. I want to tell you about this category of growth in my life because maybe you didn't notice it, which I didn't, and I told him that. He said, but so you can help me in the future when we're around each other. I was like, dang, that's awesome. I want to be like that when I grow up. Friends, we want to grow in humility, and growing in humility, we will we'll be growing in humility within community with other people. Second way of walking out the gospel is gentleness. Gentleness. Followers of Christ, both male and female, are to be gentle. Even though this could be characterized as more of a feminine quality or virtue, Paul even says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So Paul's saying this is kind of a feminine quality oftentimes, but Paul, a man, is saying, no, we're, we're taking this on right here. He's exercising gentleness. Now, just picture nursing mom, what's she doing? She's meeting the needs of a child. She's looking after the welfare of another. And do you know, some of you ladies, like, I lived this, like, for hours last night. Do you know what's happening right before a mom starts feeding a baby? The baby's usually not happy. The baby's usually crying. The child's upset, maybe even angry. And what's the response of the mom? Gentleness. That's what the scriptural picture is here. Gentleness. Gentleness is the counter-reaction to someone who is not happy with you. Someone who is saying, you're not meeting my needs. Or maybe even bringing accusations against you. Gentleness. The word gentleness can be translated as meekness here. Controlled strength. Jesus describes himself in Matthew chapter 11 as gentle. The ultimate man, the king, our king, is gentle and meek. 
We see him touch the leper, have compassion on wandering people, call the children to himself, even as he is nailed to the cross. This just gets me every time. He's nailed to the cross, bloodied like crazy, mocked, people yelling at him, jeering at him. He looks and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Gentleness, forgiving heart. A defining characteristic of Jesus is his gentleness. So a defining characteristic of Jesus' followers is to be gentleness. So how's that going? Dad, are you gentle with your kids? Mom, how about you? Husbands and wives, are you gentle with one another? Siblings, would your relationship with your brother or your sister be characterized as gentle? How about with your roommate, gentle? Your neighbors, gentle? You see, the temptation can be like, well, that's not my personality. Like, I'm just not a gentle person. And No, this isn't talking about personality traits. This is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. A fruit of the Spirit in your life is gentleness. We should be walking toward gentleness. I don't think Paul was naturally gentle. Like you just start reading the early parts of Saul in Acts, it's like that guy's not gentle. He's coming with fire, man. He is coming. And yet he talks about being gentle with others, even in the face of opposition. Friends, we need the Spirit to do this in our lives. We're going to keep finding that we fall short as this list keeps going. And you might say, Mike, okay, we've covered two. We covered humility and gentleness. I think we're good for the day. Like, lighten up. Yes, what? It's not lightening up. Here's the next one. Patience. Oh, man. This next characteristic, I think, is one of the biggest deals in our current age. We are discipled in our culture to have everything instantly. I mean, if, if something doesn't load on my phone in 0.3 seconds, I'm tapping it like three more times. Like, what in the world is going on? Why is it so slow? Right? Or the driver, you're at the stoplight and it turns green. How many seconds till you get irritated with the driver in front of you? You're like, one, one thousand, two, bang! You know, you're like, go already! Or the child, and this maybe never happens in your home, the child forgets something. You're trying to back out of the driveway. Oh, I forgot. And they got to run inside. And you're like, oh my gosh, what? Like, I told you that four times to get that item. Friends, I get impatient. And yet, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ. And doing that will be progressively growing in the area of being patient. Patience is the opposite of being short-tempered. It is long-tempered. Patience is long-suffering. It's slowness to anger. Friends, are you patient? You see, we see the great commands of the Bible. We can rattle them off. What's the greatest command that is given uh, by Jesus? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love, I love, love. I love to love others. Love God, love others. But we forget 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, love 
is patience. Friends, when, when we're impatient with our child or with our coworker or with our neighbor, we are not being loving. It's the opposite. Practical Christianity is a Christianity of patience. Alan Credder wrote a, a long book, and I think he wrote it a long, lengthy book just to teach me patience. Uh, the, the book's entitled The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. He talks about ferment like wine. Wine takes a long time to ferment. You don't make good wine in like a single day. Like that just doesn't happen. It takes time. And he said there was this patience that characterized the early church, and the patience was the power of the early church. Oh, man. What if the patience in your life is the power of how God's going to work in your life? It was the patience of the early church that made them so attractive. They believed Jesus changed the world, brought sinners from darkness to light, and so they walked out patience, patience under persecution, patience with one another, patience with their government, patience to disciple. Cyprian, Justin, Clement, Origen, Tertullian, church father after church father wrote about patience. They wrote about patience. Some of these guys knew the disciples or new disciples of the disciples. Like, there's not a far link between them and Jesus. Alan Crater says this, when people seek to follow Christ according to origin, he's one of the church fathers, God forms them into people who embody patience. Christ's followers are not in a hurry. They listen carefully when the word is read and preached. They patiently call to account straying Christians Patient believers trust God. Patience is at the heart of being a Christian. Tertullian, a North African bishop in 204, hand wrote one of his first books, one of his most well-known books. You know what the name of the book is? On Patience. Can you imagine handwriting a book? Just Some of you guys like writing. That would drive me nuts. And then no one could read it because I'm left-handed and it smears everywhere. Here's what he says. It, patience, patience attracts the heathen, recommends the slave to his master and the master to God. It adorns a woman and perfects a man. It is loved in a child, praised in a youth, esteemed in the age, in both man and woman at every age of life. It is exceedingly attractive. Patience is attractive. And don't you feel that way? Like when you've messed up, you've blown it, you know whatever happened, that's on you, and someone comes to you in patience and kindness and care, and it's like, hey, we're good. We're going to fix this. We're going to walk this out. And you're like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Friends, God wants to grow us in being patient but your family wants you to grow in being patient. Your neighbor, your coworker, it's attractive to the gospel because Jesus was the ultimate patient one. And God, God is so patient with us, right? We've received patience from the Lord. He's so 
patient with us? How can we not extend that patience to another? That's the Father's heart for you, friends. He's patient with you. A fourth way we live life worthy of the gospel is bearing with one another in love. Part of the definition of love is the bearing with one another. It means you are not aligned with someone. You are not in agreement with them. You're not looking at life the same way, but you are bearing with them in love. This is not rolling your eyes. This is not gossiping. This is not begrudged annoyance or peace faking. It's really back to the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So bearing with one another in love is believing the best about another person. You're believing the best. When you enter conversations with people, especially those that we talked about in the last section about that irritate you or aggravate you, do you believe the best about their heart, their motives, their, what they're saying, their intentions, being charitable with the other person as you would want them to be charitable with you? bearing with one another in love. And that's closely tied to the fifth way of walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that is this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the Holy Spirit unifies. That's what Jesus prayed for his disciples, that they may be one as you and I are one, Father. The Holy Spirit is continually doing this. If we are perceptive to the Spirit, we're soft-hearted. We're going to the Lord say, soften my heart, Lord. He's going to show us where there's disunity between us and others. He's going to reveal that. And so here's the question from this text is, are we eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Are we eager to be unified with brothers and sisters in Christ, in our community group, in our church, in our family? Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Friends, are we eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Because it will affect every interaction we have. It will affect the way we talk. It will affect the way we communicate online. I mean, if you just take these five things and like, does my, do I, my interactions with other people and even like online, are they characterized by this? The internet, you go to Facebook, Instagram, whatever, TikTok, they are not characterized by humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. That's the opposite. But oh, this affects us. This affects the way we think. It affects the way we listen to others and take in news. It affects us. And we'll cover this more in the coming weeks, but notice how the lived-out unity has theological grounding. Look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The church is one body with one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. So what is the application of the believer to this oneness we have? We're eager for the unity. 
We're eager for the bond of peace. We understand there's top tier issues. There's tier one issues that are essential that we are unified in. Who Jesus is, the death and resurrection. There are tier two issues that are important issues. This is what gathers the church together doctrinally. And then there are tier three issues that are debatable, that are opinions. Paul's talking about these tier one issues. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And there's unity there. But part of unity is knowing where there can be diversity. Where there's tier three issues that we can maintain unity here and disagree here. Where we can maintain unity on tier one and even tier two, but have not disunity, disagreement there. You see, part of the problem with Christians and churches over the last two years is that there were so many tier three issues that got people rattled. Masks or no masks? Vaccine, no vaccine? Can I vote for this candidate or that candidate? What should I do? And all these tier three issues start getting ramped up into tier two. And then people are like, well, can we even unify about that? Can I even go to the same church? Do we even love the same Lord? Are you even a Christian? Because you don't wear a mask or you do wear a mask. Like, what the heck? Friends, this is dangerous. When we start elevating tier three issues into tier two and tier one issues, we are vastly running toward the world of tribalism and cancel culture. And we are vastly running away from this text, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So being a Christian and learning to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is learning how to handle disagreement. And here, here's a key for a follower of Christ. Disagreement does not mean disunity. Disagreement does not mean disunity. Tier three issues, we're going to have a whole host of disagreement about tier three issues. In this room, there's whatever, 120, 150 people. There's probably 150 different opinions on some certain things. But we've got to know what's tier one, what's tier two, and what is tier three. So friends, are you eager to maintain the unity or are you harboring disunity, seeds of bitterness that are right now growing in your heart, that, that the Holy Spirit right now is calling you to repent of? Vertically, Lord, forgive me here, but then horizontally repenting to your brother or sister in Christ. Are there tier three issues that have snuck into tier two or tier one, causing fraction, causing disunity? I had a brother in Christ confessed to me that over the last year, man, he started listening to something that was kind of edging on conspiracy theory, and it started, started consuming some of his time, some of his thoughts, and it was, it was starting to head into a tier two. He's like, whoa, got to repent of that. Friends, let's ask the Holy Spirit to show us these things, to talk out this in community, and to be eager for unity. Friends, this passage could be considered, this Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 could, could be considered simple. It could be considered practical, but it is incredibly invasive to our lives. Are we doers of the word or are we hearers only? We are called to walk out the Christian life in all of these areas. So friends, again, there, there aren't camps here. So if you're looking at these five areas, you're like, man, I, 
patience. I'm a patient person. I'm in the patient camp with all the patient people, but that gentleness, that's over, uh, over there, and those people can be the gentle people. I'll be part of the patient people. That's not how it works. This isn't like bifurcated. This isn't, this isn't cutting this up. This is like, this is all of these. All five of these are who we are supposed to be. It's not a buffet. I like a little gentleness, but not the unity part. The Holy Spirit is calling us toward holiness. Duh. The Holy Spirit is calling us toward holiness, the worthy life. So it is helpful, though, even though we don't want to, like, have different camps of these different things, it is helpful to isolate one or two of them and consider, how might God be wanting to grow me here? Or how has he grown me? So as we close, I want us to think of this. Look at this list of five, what John Stott called the five foundational stones. And think, which of these most characterizes my life? Which one have I just seen God grow me in? And just thank him for that. Oh God, you've been growing me in humility or patience or unity. And then which of these least characterizes my life? And then how does God want you to take a step in that area? One step. We talk about this oftentimes. Throw the pebble in the pond. One pebble that has a ripple effect on other areas of your life. It might be humility. You, you need to just bring this up to a friend. Hey, how am I growing here? Getting input. Maybe it's gentleness. Assessing your words this week in the actions of your week. Am I being gentle? Or patience. Maybe there's repentance for impatience that needs to happen. Maybe it's bearing with one another in love, praying for that person that you currently find unbearable. And you're starting to pray for them. That will help a ton. Maybe it's eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace, sitting quietly listening to the spirit, Asking God, am I eager for this? That word eager can trip you up. Like, not just do I like it, but am I eager for it? As we close, I want to make one more observation, then I'm going to pray. Friends, the world is starving for such people. The world is starving. I don't know people at the cigar shop or the coffee shop or the workplace that would not want to be around people who are humble, gentle, patient, loving, and peaceful. Our world is starving for people walking out the worthy life and and bringing them in and saying, hey, let me show you Jesus Christ, the ultimate one who embodies all of these characteristics. He died on the cross for me. He rose from the grave for me. He now uh, uh, sits on his throne praying for me to continue to grow in these areas. He is for me, not against me. Friends, let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which we've been called. Oh God, help us to grow in humility individually and as a church. Father, help us to grow in gentleness, individually and as a church. Help us to grow in patience, individually 
and as a church. Father, help us to grow in bearing with one another in love. God, individually and as a church. Lord, help us to grow in being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace individually and as a church. Father, work these things in our hearts, deeply rooted and grounded in your love, being doers of your word and not hearers only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.